Good morning, everybody. <laughs> Sorry. Maybe it's like that post-Easter hangover. I have no idea. Thanks for letting church be a family. We work hard to make those smooth once in a while. I make them rough. Hey. I'm a human. All right, I was thinking this week about something uh, that was a, a high point in my life when I was a teenager. 1987, I went to, uh, believe it or not, this was, a, a, maybe you're like, of course I believe it. This was a big deal to me. Uh, I went to my first concert. I was 13 years old. It was the U2 Joshua Tree Tour. This was like one of the defining out rock albums of the 20th century uh, and a, a moment of kind of a turning point in history, an alt band that like made it big. I got to go to the concert with my sister. We each brought a friend. My dad sat outside Sullivan Stadium in Foxborough for like four hours in his car in the parking lot. Man, what a saint of God. Now I am getting that experience on the dad end in various ways. My sister and I and our friends witnessed this concert. I was so excited about it. I had had this discovery of music renaissance, and I thought, man, I get to see you too, like Bono, The Edge, up close and personal. And I got there and was super excited for the concert. And then, of course, it was an outdoor stadium concert. That's how big they were at the time. And so we were, as you would imagine, in the upper deck far corner, right? So the stage was at the end, like in an end zone. We were on the far side in the upper corner. And so like, Bono was a, a tiny speck, and they had a screen, but not like the screens we have today. And so you really would have needed binoculars to even feel like you, you could be up close and personal with them. And I remember being at once just so energized by being at this historic concert. And now, you know, today, uh, it's, all the, it's all the rage to, to wear music shirts if you go into Urban Outfitters or even Target, it's like Mike and the Mechanics. And, you know, I look at the, the uh, Gen Zer and I'm like, do you even know who Mike and the Mechanics are? They're like, no, it's just a cool shirt. Like Mike and the Mechanics were, never mind, wasted on the young. Uh, but I saw literally the U2 Joshua Tree Tour shirt, the exact shirt that I got at that concert on the person of, of a, a classmate of one of my sophomore and high school sons who was not even alive when the concert happened. I'm like, give me that shirt. That's, I should be wearing that shirt. Super meaningful. And yet there was, I confess, I didn't want to say it, a little disappointment because I got there and I realized this was far from up close and personal. And so I found myself wondering how to get up close after all. Do you have to have backstage passes? Do you have to be like Bono's nephew? Is this even possible? Our topic this morning is how to get up close. How to get up close. We're in Luke chapter 24. This is the culmination of our Passion Tide season. And the Lord Jesus, having just risen from the dead, is now for a month or two interacting with the people in Jerusalem, with his disciples and followers before, of course, he returns to be with the Father. In Luke 24, we pick up the story here. Jesus told his disciples through Mary and the others that found him, tell my disciples, go back uh, where you you hung out to our secret hideout, you know, um, and I'll come and meet you there. So they did. And he came, they were talking about what had gone down. And the word of God says, just as they were talking about it, Jesus himself was suddenly standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said, but the whole group is startled and frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost. Why are you frightened? He asked, why are your hearts filled with doubt? 
Look at my hands. Look at my feet. You can see it's, it's really me. Touch me and make sure that I'm not a ghost because ghosts don't have bodies as you see that I do. And as he spoke, he showed them his hands and his feet. And still, they stood there in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. And then he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he ate it as they watched. And I think this scene is funny. They're like, he's like, guys, it's just me. And they're like, He's like, I was kind of hungry. I didn't eat for the last couple days. Do you have any food? And they're like, and Jesus is sitting there. He's like, and they're like, he's like, But it's just so real and raw and clunky, and that's how the resurrection was. We want it to be this grandiose thing where Jesus comes down with a voice that echoes, you know, or he comes back like Gandalf when he turned white after getting, after smiting the Balrog, and, and, and he's like, oh, yes, Gandalf, that's what they used to call me. But Jesus was just Jesus with scars and a ravenous appetite. I guess saving the world and rising from the dead will make you hungry, and so the, the fact that this is there is just so remarkable that he's like eating with them to make the point that one, he is in fact him, they're not seeing a ghost, but two, that he's, they're still them, he's still one of their homies. The deal that they were in on that seemed like was off, it's still on. And I think the resurrection in its earliest moments reinforce that it, it always was about relationship first. That's the way it had gone down. For three years, they got the sense that Jesus was here to do something transcendent and that he was God, but still it was the relationship that held it together and that substantiated where they were going and what they were doing. As flashback, the disciples must have been playing and replaying those prescient last words of Jesus during Passion Week. In John 14, the scriptures record, he said, don't let your hearts be troubled. This just before he went to the cross. Trust in God and trust also in me. There's more than enough room in my father's home. If this weren't so, I would have told you. He said, I wouldn't say I'm going to prepare a place for you if there was no place for you. But when everything's ready, I'll come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. See, it was always relationship first. It wasn't about, hey, I, we're going to divide and conquer and we're going to save the world. It was about, we're going to be together again. You can always be with me. That's the end game. It was always about relationship first, not exclusively, but that's where it began. In John 17, the disciples must have remembered his prayer. In between dozing off, they heard him over there crying out to God and been like, you know, he prayed this. Remember he said that before the meal. John 17, he prayed, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you, may they be in us, the way you and I are so connected, so deeply and permanently connected. May they be connected with us in that sort of relationship. Father, I want these whom you've given me 
to be with me where I am. So Jesus isn't praying about saving the world. He's praying about the relationship. He's inviting them and reassuring them. The relationship is the tie that binds. And that's always been what came first. From God's creation design, it was relationship with the man and the woman in the garden that he desired. In raising up Abraham, choosing a people through whom he would bless all nations, it was relationship. It was relationship through Moses that God invited the people into. And it was relationship that the psalmist sung of and the prophets prophesied about. That's always been God's end game and where he began. Any um, parents who have earned the skiing with small children merit badge? There's a merit badge for that in heaven, for the time and the money and the effort and the fact that you spend like two and a half hours getting all bundled up and then you get in the lift and, and they're like, I, I have to go to the bathroom. And you're like, no, you don't. Oh, yes, I do. No, you don't. No, you, what you don't have to do is go to the bathroom because we were just in the lodge for two and a half hours, any of which time you could have had to go to the bathroom. Now what you have to do is ski. I don't want to ski. Or I'm cold. No, you're not. Uh, yes, I am. You, no, you're not. Because we just put like seven inches of insulative outerwear on you and you're not cold. And, and then, then you go down once and they fall and then that's it. And then you're back in the lodge and you're trying not to act like what you're thinking about, which is how much money you spent and how that, it's like a gas tank rolling in your head. Skiing with little kids is not for the faint of heart, nor is it for the cost efficient. If you're trying to do the most cost efficient thing, leave them with grandma. They need grandma, grandma needs them, you need to ski, winds all around. Skiing with little kids is about one thing, relationship, isn't it? Because those little kids turn into big kids and then young adults and the people that you want to ski with most in the world, but not without that sacrifice. Or the pizza thing, did anyone do the straps where you're skiing behind them, not knowing that this at 32 turns into like this at 42? You're skiing behind them, pizzaing, holding the straps. All of that is about relationship. It, it didn't occur to me that my dad actually learned to ski in his 40s because I love to ski. I did the ski bus, but then I didn't want to just go to the local hill on the ski bus. I wanted to go up to New Hampshire to the mountains, and I could have gone with friends and their families, but my dad's like, oh, heck no, I want to be with my boy. So he learned to ski in his bone-fragile 40s. Like me going, Dad, keep your pizza. And, and I assumed this was just so much fun for him. It was about relationship. He wanted to be with me. Like I wanted to be with my kids. That's how God is with us. That's the, the layer that undergirds Jesus' transcendent passion-tied work. We've talked about the significance of his death on the cross, the significance of his resurrection and victory over the grave, but underneath it all is this passionate, persistent desire for relationship. The story continues in Luke 24. Jesus said, yes, it was written long ago the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead in the third day. You know, I'm not saying I told you so, but kind of told you so. It, it's not been that mysterious. I told you three times it was going to happen. The prophets said it. I get that it was not what you were expecting, but he explains all this to him. He says it was also written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. There's forgiveness of sins for all who repent and you're witnesses of these things. So he says, 
what happened was prophesied. This was part of God's redemptive plan. What's about to happen, that I'm going to pass the baton, and in the authority of my name, because of the victory which I won, all people are going to be given the opportunity to receive redemption and new life. This mission is ongoing, and it's been foretold. And now he says, I will send the Holy Spirit just as my father promised. But stay here in the city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from heaven. Then Jesus led them to Bethany and lifting his hands to heaven, he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up to heaven. So they worshiped him and then returned to Jerusalem filled with great joy. And they spent all of their time in the temple praising God. So Jesus says, my return is temporary. The way that the mission continues from here isn't me going back to what I was doing and you being my helpers and me changing the world, but now everybody has seen me rise from the dead so they'll actually listen and believe. The way the mission goes from here, the way this thing's going to explode and turn the world upside down is I'm going to pass the baton to you and in the authority of my name by the Holy Spirit, you're going to go on, accomplish the mission and change the world. So he says, this is a big deal. It's getting ready to go down, and it's going to go down through you all. And you're the witnesses. You're the beachhead. You're where this starts. And so it's so important that I need you to wait. Don't go. It's like Jesus has given him this, this uh, pregame motivational speech. He's like, it's going to be huge. The kingdom of heaven is coming. You're the witnesses. Ready, set, stay here until further notice. So important is it that you receive the Holy Spirit. And so this is the culmination of what we call Passion Tide, the tide, the season, the entrance into humanity of Jesus' passion. It culminates after his resurrection in his impartation of the Holy Spirit. That which was the way he accomplished all of his work. Remember he said, what I did, I did by the finger of God, by the Holy Spirit. And so will you. He told them, the Spirit who has been with you is going to be in you. And so the culmination of Passion Tide is Jesus preparing his disciples to carry the torch into the new era, build the church, accomplish the mission of his kingdom, and they are to do it through the Holy Spirit. And so the two agendas of Jesus, redemption and relationship, they culminate here. The Holy Spirit is how we have the relationship God desires. And the relationship is how we accomplish our mission. The Holy Spirit is how we can hope to have the relationship that God has created us for in the beginning and intended for us all along. And it's through that relationship that we're going to accomplish our mission. If it's going to be accomplished... It's going to be accomplished in relationship with him. 
Jesus, by flashback in John 14, said, I will ask my father. This was that night before he went to the cross when he's speaking plainly to him. And he will give you another advocate. This is when he said, don't let your hearts be troubled. I know you're sad. I'm going away. But he said, I'll ask the Father and he's going to give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit and he leads you into all truth. The world can't receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. He's been around you. Periodically, he's worked through you. He has been on display in me. Everything I've done has been through the Holy Spirit, Jesus says in effect. And now that you've seen how it works, I've given you not an exceptional model that relies on another Superman coming down from the cosmos, but God working through complete and total humans. That's what's about to happen for you. Jesus made it possible to have relationship with God. That's what we talked about on the cross. That's what Pastor Neil did such a great job describing on Good Friday. Jesus died for us. The curtain in the temple that symbolized our separation from God and his inaccessibility because of his holiness and because of our brokenness. That temple curtain was torn. Our access to God was granted. Jesus made the relationship possible. And the Holy Spirit makes it functional. The Holy Spirit is how that possibility is realized. It's how that relationship actually goes down. And so in verse 23 of John 14, Jesus said, All who love me will do what I say. My Father will love them and will come and make our home with each of them. We're going to come, Father and Son, and make our home with each of you, daughters and sons of God. Jesus made his home with a handful of people. And they got to experience God in the flesh revealed in Christ, up close and personal, but not equitably and only for three short years, right? Even, I would imagine the outsiders, you know, the the Pharisees, maybe that group of 70 that were his broader disciples, were having to wrestle through jealousy of the 12 apostles because they got to hang with Jesus. They got to get in the boat and go with him when he left the crowd. But even the disciples didn't all have equal access. Like, The other nine probably were like, dang it, when Peter, James, and John got to go up on the mountain and watch Jesus turn dazzling white and see the ghosts of Moses and Elijah. And the other nine were like, well, that stinks. And even like Peter and James saw Jesus reclining against John and whispering to him, and they're like, man, it's all John, 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 like Marsha, Marsha, Marsha in the Brady Bunch days. They're like, nobody got full Jesus. He said, we're going to come and make our home with each one of you. Imagine being Andrew, Peter's brother, who actually discovered Jesus. And the first thing he did was go get his brother, Peter. Peter comes and Jesus is like, Andrew, Nathaniel, Bartholomew. Oh yeah, Simon, you're Peter. And on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And why don't you come on up to the mountain with me and see Moses and Elijah? And Andrew's like, 
No, what about this guy? I found you. I introduced you to Peter. Nobody got Jesus equitably, but he said, my father and I, we want to come and make our home in each of you. How is that possible? I'm telling you these things, verse 25, while I'm still with you. But when my father sends the advocate as my representative, the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and remind you everything I have told you. He will make living with me more possible than living with me. He's going to remind you of everything I have taught you, and he's going to continue to reveal my heart and my direction for you. And in John 16, Jesus said this unimaginable thing. In fact, it is best for you that I go away. Because if I don't, the advocate won't come. And the disciples, as I've talked about many times with you before, had to have, at the time, been so incredulous. Come on, Jesus. Maybe it's best for you. Like, I get it. If, in fact, you are in very nature God and have spent eternally coexisting with the Father and the Holy Spirit, whatever exactly that is, that you've gone slumming with us for a few years, and I don't begrudge you wanting to go back to glory and sit at the right hand of God again. Probably best for you, but definitely not best for me when I've had you here in the flesh. But Jesus says, no, it's actually better for you that I go away because you're going to get the advocate, the Holy Spirit. Think about it practically. We're like, no, I'd rather have Jesus on the earth if I'm honest. Like the true confession moment about, do I really want to go to heaven as I've understood heaven over the years that we talked about last week? I, if, if I'm given the choice in the moment, probably choose, no, I'll take Jesus in the flesh. But if we had Jesus in the flesh, in very nature God, but also fully a man, which means, among other things, he's confined to one, like, five foot ten frame and one place on the planet at a time. By now, if Jesus were with us and were like a man but didn't age, you know, like Richard on Lost, he just wore eye makeup and stayed young while everybody else got older. If that was Jesus, we'd be, like, waiting in line outside stadiums to see a glimpse of him from afar, thinking, hey, finally, I got my ticket. I've been waiting for years. I'm going to see Jesus only to get into the stadium, like looking at Bono from across the county. I mean, like, this isn't really exactly up close and personal. I feel like I got gypped. I spent like 200 bucks on these tickets to see Jesus, but I can barely see him. Honey, did you bring the binoculars? Oh, wait, there he is. What's he wearing? I, just, I can't really tell. Or maybe you like think you know him personally by following his Twitter and listening to him post insignificant things like what he ate for breakfast, the way we all obsessively follow celebrities and feel like we know them, but really we don't at all. Maybe you do that or you watch his YouTube channel, but you don't really know him, do you? If he's here. This is how we get up close. Jesus said, trust me, it's best for you. The Holy Spirit is how I will live in you and you will live in me and we will have relationship. And through that relationship, you will change the world. Okay, three things you need to know about the Holy Spirit. Three things, you ready? First, the Holy Spirit is a person to know not an advantage to leverage. He's not an aura or a force field. 
I think I, when I discovered the Holy Spirit after my childhood of sort of don't ask, don't tell about the Holy Spirit, you know, my, my church culture was more like the Clinton administration is like don't ask, don't tell. Nobody conjured up like flimsy theologies to say that the Holy Spirit stopped doing this at that day. You know, like the, the gifts stopped, but some of the gifts didn't. Like nobody thinks, I've never been to one Baptist church that thinks like the gift of administration stopped when the scriptures were canonized. Like the gift of helps or hospitality, no one thinks that ceased. It's the weird gifts that we think ceased, right? Because we didn't experience them. Therefore, uh, we being the arbiter of, of actuality can create theologies to make our experience normative. That's so us, so human. Anyway, I digress. I grew up not in a explain away large, like, sections of scripture based on my limited keyhole of experience. I grew up more in the don't ask, don't tell about the Holy Spirit. There was too much of a, of a, of a um, self-assurance around our cerebral faith, our understanding to try and say that. So instead what we did was just kind of treated the Holy Spirit as like lowbrow culture. That's what those people over there do in that church that's like a white box and, you know, they kind of dance around and all of that we just sort of reduced but never said it. It just no one mentioned the Holy Spirit. But when I discovered the ministry of the Holy Spirit, I think the way that I heard it, and this probably isn't on the teachers, this is probably on me, but the way that it went down for me was that the Holy Spirit was like the big power pellet in the corners of Pac-Man. You know, you got the little dots that are a point each, but while you're eating the little dots, everyone knows Pac-Man, right? All right, while you're eating the little dots, you're running away from the ghosts and you're a little slower. They're more powerful. But when you get the big power pellet, then all of a sudden you turn tails and the ghosts blink and you get faster. And for a short time, you can catch the ghosts and eat them. And so, but it wears off. And then you go back to running away. So you need to go get another Holy Spirit power pellet. And we've made the Holy Spirit like Popeye spinach or Pac-Man's power pellet, a force enhancer, right? Something that makes you stronger, and the Holy Spirit, Jesus made clear, is not an advantage to leverage, but a person to know. John 16, when the Spirit of truth comes, Jesus said, listen, all important pronoun, He, He will guide you into all truth. How sadly often we mature Christians refer to the Holy Spirit as it. You're like, it's just a pronoun. What's the big deal? An it is an inanimate object. An it does not have a personality. An it does not have feelings or preferences. An it is something that we leverage. An it is technology. It's tools. Like I was trying to get the sprinkler up out of the casing to replace the cracked head. I made the fateful homeowner maintenance mistake of taking the broken head off and then dropping the tube back down in. So I went and got like the two different pairs of pliers and was trying to pull that thing out. And that tool is an it. It doesn't have a name or a personality or a desire for relationship. And if it did, I wouldn't be able to relate to it. It was merely a force enhancer to help me to fix my sprinkler head. Lots of us have referred to the Holy Spirit in the same way without even knowing we were doing that. He will guide you into all truth. Jesus speaking. He will not speak to you on his own. He will tell you what he has heard. He will tell you about the future. He will bring me glory by telling you whatever he receives from me. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the Father are in perpetual loving union. 
And it's that union into which he invites you and me. Second, the Holy Spirit is not an upgrade option. There's three things you need to know about the Holy Spirit. What was the first? The Holy Spirit is a person to know, not an advantage to leverage. The second, the Holy Spirit isn't an upgrade option. I, I think we've looked at the Holy Spirit like the, you know, the heated and cooled leather seats or the navigation system. That like, if you got the money and you want to splurge, or maybe you're like older and you've already put your kids through college and, and you can kind of get the caddy with the soft plush ride, then you get those upgrade options. And like, do we really, if we're honest, need the navigation system now that everybody's phone has a better navigation system in it, that you don't have to weirdly get a DVD-ROM to try and upgrade, update and things like that? Does anybody actually use the built-in nav system? Not that many. Do I really need the Holy Spirit? I mean, I made it this far. My dad was real practical. We drove Honda Accords with upholstery seats. That's good for him. That's good for me. Do I really need the Holy Spirit? I mean, it's good for them. They're like really into religion enthusiasts. I, don't get me wrong. I love Jesus. I love my church, but that's, I don't know about that stuff. Listen, the Holy Spirit is not an upgrade option. Jesus said, so essential to God's heart are you and relationship with you. So imperative is your mandate to take the gospel to the ends of the earth and invite people to experience redemption by knowing that their heavenly father loves them that much. So invaluable, so important is this relationship and this mission that I want you to wait. I want you to stay here until you receive the Holy Spirit. Because without Him, you don't have a prayer. But with Him living in you, I'm going to change the world through you. And even better, I'm going to change the world with you. Three things you need to know about the Holy Spirit. A person to know, not an advantage to leverage, not an upgrade option. Third, the Holy Spirit administers God's wisdom, comfort, and guidance. God's wisdom, comfort, and guidance. The things that we come to God hearing about and believing after a while, this is our Father's heart. He's not distant, he's not angry, he's not petulant, and he's not too busy to be bothered. He has wisdom for you when you don't know what to do. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask. I give it freely without limit. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavily laden, all you who are burdened, binding up the brokenhearted. That's what I came to do. God offers comfort to those who mourn, to those who struggle with loneliness, discouragement, sickness, feel lost and don't know where to go, feel like they've missed the boat, they've gone too far, they've done too much. There's no hope left for them. He offers comfort. God offers guidance. He says through the prophet Isaiah, you'll come to an intersection. Don't just willy-nilly go to the left or go to the right. You'll hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. I know the plans for you, God said through the prophet Jeremiah, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a future with great hope. I've got an incredible life. I will guide you in it. 
I don't just want to get you saved and then say, all right, go back and try to ease up on the sinning. I want to redeem it to the utmost. We believe this about God, but did you know his wisdom, his comfort, his guidance, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit leads us in these things. The bulk of the book of Proverbs is about wisdom and it personifies wisdom and that is the Holy Spirit. He is the wisdom of God reminding us of what Jesus taught, speaking to us in real time, in moments, in days about what Jesus would do. We ask the question as a culture, we put it on bracelets, what would Jesus do? But we don't have to leave it rhetorical because the Holy Spirit's function is to tell us to remind us, to reveal to us what Jesus would do. And then when we mess up, when we blow it, when others hurt us, Jesus called him the comforter. He is the arms of God who is nearer than a brother, is closer than our own skin. Is God re renewing, restoring, healing? He said, I'm gonna make all things new. He does it from the inside out. And it is the Holy Spirit who guides us. Jesus said he will tell you what is to come. He'll tell you about the future. He'll reveal to you where to go and what to do when you need to know it. Jesus said, don't even worry about what you're gonna say when you're in a pinch. The words will be given to you. By whom? He goes all past tense. I mean, all, all passive voice, kind of like mistakes were made. You know how we do that to awkwardly avoid agency? The words will be given to you. How? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God's wisdom, God's comfort, God's guidance. And he wants to fill and fellowship with every one of us. And that's where Passion Tide comes to an end. The mission, the formation and mission of the church and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And what a tragedy. And friends, what a win for the devil that we have made such a mess of this Holy Spirit stuff that we've turned it into a, eh, I don't know, it's a little bit culturally lowbrow, though nobody says it. It's a little weird, or I had a really weird experience, or somebody was pushy and off-putting, so I'm just gonna leave a third of the eternally coexistent triune Godhead over there the third through whom I know the other two. It doesn't make sense. As your pastor, I'm not trying to sell you a bill of goods. I care too much about you to allow such weak intellectual nonsense to limit our experience of God. If the Holy Spirit is too objectionable or too weird for you, that's your choice. Let me just tell you, then God is too objectionable and weird for you. So just say so. I mean, you'll find plenty of company in Denver. You'll find God on slopes, in trees, on mountain climbing uh, paths and everything else. But friends, the Holy Spirit is our advocate. He is good. Jesus said, ask and you'll receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you says, you parents, instinctively, when your kids ask for gifts, you, you don't give them bad things. You love to give good gifts to your children. How much more 
Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke, will your heavenly Father give, listen, the Holy Spirit to those who ask? You're like, but don't, I, don't we all get the Holy Spirit? Sure, the Holy Spirit has a deposit, a seal guaranteeing what is to come. But he says, ask and keep on asking. Be filled and keep on filling up. Because like when we get filled with the Word of God, it, it, it guides us for a while, but that effect kind of wears off because we live and operate and work in a world that's fallen. And we are still the broken humans that were redeemed and will continue to be until we meet Jesus face to face. And so he says, the Holy Spirit doesn't just give you, like your mom gave you a popsicle and is like, make it last. And well, I don't want the green one. Well, you get what you get and don't have a fit. That's not God. He says, keep on coming back. I'll keep on giving you more. Keep asking. You'll keep receiving. Stand with me. It's time for us to go. Father, in Jesus' name, we just simply ask. Would you do this with me? If you're, if you're from a hands involved in church culture, it's no big deal. If you're like me, you grew up Presbyterian, you know, it was like if, if something really big's happening, it was like one hand to the waist here. Like if it's two hands, exceptional, maybe once every couple of years move of God. If they're up here, you should be looking for the four horsemen of the apocalypse or something. That was just the culture. I'm not trying to dog that. I come from it too. If they're for Jesus, we're for them. If you come from charismatic culture, you're like, hands are always involved in worship. Here's all this is. It's the international gesture for I surrender and I receive. That's it. Would you just open your hands toward our Heavenly Father? Just pray this with me in your heart if you would. Let's close our eyes and bow our heads. Use your own words. Just pray along with me. Join your faith. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us Jesus, your son, to die on the cross, to redeem us of our sins, to rise victorious and share the victory over this world and sin and death and the grave. Thank you for inviting me into a relationship with you. Thank you that you have always been inviting us into relationship with you. It's always been about relationship. Thank you for seeing me, for valuing me. Thank you, Jesus, for leaving the Holy Spirit. Incomprehensible though it seems that this could be better for us. Thank you that you want to know us and you want us to know you up close and personal. So Holy Spirit, would you fill me up today? Just pray to God, the Holy Spirit. Come and in, inhabit my heart afresh. I invite you anew, or maybe for the first time, to fill me, to live in me, to speak to me. I need you to comfort me. I ask you for your wisdom. I wait and seek your direction. Reveal Jesus to me. I welcome you, Holy Spirit. Teach me to live with you, listen to you, and have fellowship with you, that we may be one as you and Jesus, my Lord, and God the Father are one. May I be one with you. Amen. Amen. Thanks for coming to worship God with us this morning.
so excited for what he's doing in your lives, in our church, in our city. If you would like to be baptized or talk about that, please do indicate that in your Connect card, and we'll be in touch with, the, with you this week. Have an amazing week. We love you so much. Enjoy the beautiful weather, and we'll see you next Sunday. Thank you.